Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. Paul here in writing to Timothy is writing about some perilous times. He's writing about some times that he knew that, Timothy, you're going to face. You're going to be facing some obstacles. You're going to be facing some difficulties. And he writes about it in chapter number 3, verse number 1. You have your Bibles there in 2 Timothy. We'll look really briefly at chapter 3, verse number 1, where he says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Now, unless you've had your head buried in the sand, you know perilous times are not coming. Perilous times are here. Perilous times are not on the horizon. They're staring us in the face. A few weeks ago, I read about a story, uh, not a story, a real event that happened up in Canada. There was a pastor of a Baptist church up in Canada, and uh, he was pastoring his Baptist church and had services, and uh, the government didn't like it and closed down the church. They locked the doors of the church, barring them from meeting in the church building. And so what they decided to do was they said, well, if we're not allowed to worship in the church building, we'll worship out in nature. And so they went to some secluded secret, you know, they weren't uh, publicizing the location and uh, they had a worship service. Well, I don't know exactly what all the details of it, but the police sent out a helicopter to go find them. They found them and the next day they arrested the pastor. They went over to his home and in front of his wife and in front of his kids arrested him for holding an outdoor worship service. This is just north of the border in Canada. This is the Canada where, you know, the reputation is everybody's nice in Canada, right? Everybody's friendly in Canada. And this is the sort of thing that's happening in our neighbor, just to the north of us. I was reading that uh, from uh, Barna. Barna does research on kind of general Christianity and evangelicalism. And, and uh, they, they, they've been having these surveys uh, over the, the last number of years. And uh, one of the alarming statistics that, that I saw just this past week was, uh, and, and this report was actually from 2020, the number of practicing Christians in our country is down to 25%. 25% of the population uh, calls themselves, says that they are practicing Christians. That number was doubled just 20 years ago. 20 years ago, in the year 2000, the number of people that said that they were practicing Christians was about half. Half of the country. Now, half of those individuals that said that they were practicing Christians, but they are no longer practicing Christians, half of them became non-practicing Christians. They say that they're a Christian, but they don't go to church, they don't read their Bible, they don't follow the Word of God. They say that they're Christians, but they don't do anything, right? That's a non-practicing Christian. The other half became non-Christians. Now, we know about the slide of the younger generation, right? The younger generation, I'm a millennial, the millennials are kind of the beginning of that, you know, generation where we really see a steep fall off in terms of our generation having people that call themselves Christians, that say that they are saved. But in this survey, it says it's not just millennials, it's not just Gen Z, it's across the board. From boomers all the way down, you see that there is a drop 
in the number of people who call themselves practicing Christians that go to church, that read their Bibles. So when we say, or when we talk about perilous times, we need to know that perilous times are not coming. Perilous times are here. We're living in perilous times. Now, what do you do when you face perilous times? I was reading about in the mid-1800s, we know about uh, the railroads that were getting put across the country. Right? You had the East Coast, of course, you had all the people living in the East Coast, and then, of course, we know about the people living in the West Coast, right? There were some people that had begun moving out to California, and then you had the gold rush out in California, tons of people moving over to California, and there's this big gap. You have a bunch of people in the East and some people in the West, and you've got to connect these two groups of people. So what did they do? They said, we've got to put in a railroad system, okay? So it's fine. They have a railroad system, and they begin like in St. Louis and some of these other cities that are kind of there in the mid-Midwest area, and uh, they begin to move towards the West Coast. Now, I don't know if you know your geography very well, but there's something in between the Mississippi River and the Pacific Ocean that might present an obstacle if you're trying to build a railroad. It's called the Rocky Mountains, all right? If you're trying to build a railroad, mountains are not your friend. Mountains are the enemy. And of course, they knew this. And there are some areas where you could go up, but if you've ever taken a, a road trip across that area, across the country, there's sections of that where you'll have like a tunnel that goes through a section of the mountain. You'll have a road that kind of, you could tell, was kind of carved out of the mountain. Now, how do you think that they did that? You think they had a bunch of people with picks and shovels and just digging into that mountain? No, you're going to need something much more powerful to deal with that. And what they used was basically a primitive form of dynamite, right? If you face a mountain, you need dynamite. Now, God here is telling us in chapter 3, verse number 1, perilous times are here. How do we deal with perilous times? Well, I want you to look at the last two verses of the chapter. The chapter begins with perilous times are coming. Verse 16 ends this way. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or complete, truly furnished unto all good works. So chapter 3 gives us this kind of mini perspective of what is God going to tell us in this book? What God is going to tell us in this book is basically the way that chapter 3 lays out. It begins with perilous times, but it ends with the man or woman of God truly equipped unto all good works through the word of God. What God here is saying is, I know that perilous times are coming, but I've given you some powerful tools to deal with the perilous times. That's what we're going to take a look at. Chapter 3 and chapter 1, this whole book is all about perilous times are here, let's get ready. You've got to be equipped to deal with the perilous times. You've got to be equipped when your lost friends, when your co-workers challenge your faith, they challenge the word of God, they challenge your beliefs, you've got to have some tools, some equipment 
to handle that, in order to witness to a friend who's lost and they need to be saved, in order to help them to understand what their condition is, that they are lost, to understand that there is a God who loved them, who died on the cross for their sins, and if they called upon the name of the Lord to be their Savior, they too can be saved. But you're going to need some tools. Amen? And I need some tools. We all need some tools. Because God has said very clearly, I will build my church. Unconditionally, he said, I will build my church. In perilous times, I will build my church. In profitable times, I will build my church. In good times, I'll build my church. In bad times, I will build my church. And so God has given to us powerful tools to deal with the perilous times that we face. And I want to see three reasons why Paul affirms that the powerful tools are enough for you. So first of all, we see the supernatural change in Paul. See, Paul had a personal experience with what can happen even in perilous times. So Paul begins the chapter by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So verse number one, I want you to note the very first word there. The very first word is a word, Paul. Now, of course, we know about Paul. We know about the apostle Paul. But one thing that you may not know is that the name Paul is not actually his name. It's a nickname. All right. A lot of people have nicknames. In the Bible, people have nicknames. Right? We know about Peter, Peter, James, and John. Peter was not his name. His name was Simon. You'll sometimes see Simon Peter. His name was Simon. He was called Peter. And so we say, oh, it's Peter, Peter, James, and John. But his name was actually Simon. The same is true of Paul. His name was actually Saul. His name was Saul. So here is Paul writing to Timothy, calling himself not Saul, but Paul. Now, why is that significant? Well, you got to go back to the life that Saul lived when he was called Saul. What was Saul doing? He was persecuting the church. He was zealous against Jesus Christ. He was dragging Christians to jail. He got permission in order to go up to Damascus in order to arrest every single individual that called themselves by the name of Jesus Christ. He was a persecutor of Christians. He was passionately against Christ, and he was the enemy of the church. But then he got saved. He was against the church, and then he got saved. And you know what? Now he's for the church. Instead of being the enemy of the church, now he's a proponent of the church. Instead of being opposed to Christians and hailing them to jail, he's trying to protect Christians and help them. And you see this in Acts chapter 9, verse number 20. This is right after he gets saved. In verse number 20, it says, And straightway, right away, he preached Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed. They said, Saul's preaching Jesus Christ? And said, is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem and came hither? They came here for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests. Hey, isn't this the guy that was dragging Christians to jail? And isn't this the guy that came to this city in order to do the same thing? 
Verse 22, but Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews. He confused the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. So when Paul is writing and he says Paul as opposed to Saul, he's saying, I used to be Saul, persecutor of the Christians. Now I am Paul, preacher of Jesus Christ. What a glorious change. Amen? I mean, here is the lead opponent of Jesus Christ getting saved and now preaching the gospel. If that's not proof that God has powerful tools to deal with the perilous times, I don't know what is. Because here is the number one enemy of the church now getting saved and now building the church through the power of Jesus Christ. So we know that the tools that God has is enough because if he did it for Paul and in the days that he was living in, he could do it for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So here is Paul. He's acknowledging, before I used to be this way, now I am this way. Now I'm different. He's got a new character. That's proof that God's tools can be enough. But he also has a new commission. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So we know that Paul is an apostle. If you don't know what the word apostle means, it simply means to send forth. It's a messenger, basically. That's what an apostle is. An apostle is somebody who is sent by somebody else. We know about the 12 apostles in the New Testament, but there were other individuals where the word apostle is used to describe them, like Barnabas is described as an apostle in one place. What does it mean? He was sent forth. That's what God did. God sent him out of Antioch in order to preach the gospel in other places. And so he was an apostle. He was being sent forth. Here is Paul saying, I am an apostle. I'm being sent. I have a new commission. Before I followed the way of the world, now I follow Jesus Christ. And we see that in Acts chapter number 9. This is before his salvation. He says, it says there, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. So here is Saul. He's threatening every single Christian who would hear his voice, I'm taking you to jail. You will die for this belief. And he's threatening everybody that if he found any of this way. So back in the early days of the beginning of the church, you didn't have people calling themselves Christians. That was called, they were called Christians a little bit later. Here, they are called people of the way. That's what they were called. And so he says, if any be found of this way, Men or women, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter who you are. If you say that you're a Christian, you follow Jesus Christ, I want to take you to jail. That's where he's getting his orders from. But then, after he gets saved, he doesn't listen to his old bosses anymore. He's got a new leader. He's got a new boss. He's got a new individual who's telling him, this is what you ought to do. I mean, this is a total transformation in the life of Saul. Before he was Saul, persecutor of the Christians, then he gets saved, he becomes known as Paul, and then he begins to preach the gospel. And he's not following the old world system anymore. He's thrown that aside, and now he's following God. 
And so Paul is writing to Timothy and he's saying, consider my own life. I used to be Saul, but now I am Paul. Consider the way that I live. And they also lived with a great certainty according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. We live in uncertain times. We don't know what's going to happen. What will happen economically in America? We don't know. I mean, we know there's a big debt. We know about the Fed. We know about how people handle their money. We know about all of this. We know about inflation. But what's going to happen five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? We don't know. We don't know. Are we going to still be the greatest economy in the world or will we not? I don't know the answer to that. Maybe we will. Maybe we won't. I have no idea. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of uncertainty with housing, a lot of uncertainty with your job, a lot of uncertainties in a lot of different areas for different individuals. What's going to happen politically? I don't know. Next year, there's going to be an election. What's going to happen in that election? I don't know. What's going to happen in the next presidential election? I don't know. 12 years from now, what is our Congress? What is our Supreme Court? What's our you know, White House going to look like? I don't know. There's so many uncertainties. Think about your health. Think about your family situation. I mean, there's so many things that we don't know. Now, Paul doesn't have the answer to any of these questions. Paul doesn't answer the question, what's going to happen politically? He doesn't answer the question, what's going to happen economically? He doesn't answer the question, what's going to happen to your health? He answers the question, what's going to happen to your eternity? Because there's going to be a lot of ups and downs in life, but the point is, where will you end up? You might have a great year in 2021. You might have a great down year in 2022. But at the end of your life, where are you going to be? That's the most important thing. Because you might have a great, you know, you're you know, flying high and your money's building and growing. You're wealthy and everything. But you never know. Maybe your health takes a dive. And then what's the point of all of that money? And you begin to think, ah, have I really misprioritized my time? And we, we don't know all of the things that will happen in between today and the end of your life. But there is one thing that you can know for sure what will happen the day that you die. Do you know what's going to happen the day that you die? Do you know that you're going to heaven? That's the most important question. You might be facing perilous times today, but you can know with certainty where you will end up. That's what he's saying in verse number one. He says, according to the promise of life. You know the promise of Jesus Christ is not, I guarantee that your job will give you a raise every single year. That's not the promise of God. The promise of God is not, I guarantee that the political candidates that you favor will be in office every single election cycle. That's not the promise of God. The promise of God is not that you will live in great health every single year. The promise of God is not that every situation in your life will work out every single way that you want it to. The promise of God is when you die, you'll go to heaven and not to hell. What a wonderful promise. And here is Paul living with that promise. He's saying, I don't know what's going to happen this year. I don't know what's going to happen next year. I don't know what's going to happen politically, economically. I don't know any of those answers. I just know this. When I die, I'm going to heaven. And I know that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, if they trust in Jesus as their Savior, when they die, they also will go to heaven. And that's the most important thing. 
So we need to remember that. Here is Paul living with great certainty, not because he knew what would happen today or tomorrow, but because he knew what would happen at the end of time. And that's the most important thing. So first of all, we see this supernatural change in the life of Paul. He was Saul, then he got saved, and he became Paul. There was a great reversal in his life. And if God could do it for Saul, God could do it for anyone. So here is Paul giving his testimony, really in, in just a single word, in a way, of saying God still works. The second thing that we see is a surprising composure of Paul. Now, it's fine and well that Paul had a wonderful transformation in his life. But Paul here, this is 2 Timothy, this is the last letter that we have from Paul. He's thinking, this is the end of my time. Timothy, now it's your turn. It's fine and well that Paul had some wonderful times and wonderful changes in his life. But he acknowledges Timothy is going to face some perilous times. Now, Paul did not write to Timothy to complain about his problems. He did not write to Timothy to complain about the government. He did not write to Timothy to complain about other Christians or the church or his financial situation or his health, even though he faced problems in all of those areas. He faced problems with Christians, deserting him, leaving him behind. He faced problems with churches. He had invested his life into these churches, and now they were kind of turning away from him and turning to follow some other individuals. Of course, we know he had problems with the government. He had problems with his finances, where he was trying to give his life in order to support the ministry and preach the gospel. And churches that could support him financially withheld their finances because they thought only of themselves. And other churches that didn't have as much, they did try to do it. They did try to support him, but still he was not living in great wealth. He was living very meagerly in many ways. He faced all sorts of problems, but he's not writing to complain about any of these problems. Paul wrote to Timothy not to complain, but to point Timothy to the tools that God had given to Paul that he also wants to give to Timothy. See, the tools that were available to Paul are the exact same tools that were available to Timothy. And the exact same tools that were available to Timothy are the tools that are available to you. The same tools that Paul could use are the same tools that we could use. See, you know what kind of tools that God gives? See, God has given to every Christian a spiritual sword. You have a weapon in the spiritual battle that you're gonna face. It's called the sword of the spirit. You know what the sword of the Spirit is? It's the Word of God. See, the Word of God that Christians a thousand years ago had is the same Word of God that you have today. The Word of God that Christians had 1,500 years ago is the same Word of God that you have today. The Word of God that Christians had 50 years ago is the same Word of God that you have today. See, the tools that you have available to you are the same powerful tools that were available thousands of years ago. What Paul is trying to write and, and communicate to Timothy is what God did for Paul is what God can do for Timothy. And you see that he has this positive spirit. 
when he's writing in verse number two, he says to Timothy, I'm writing to you, Timothy, about these perilous times. Now, if you're writing a letter to an individual acknowledging perilous times are here, what kind of words, what kind of mood, what kind of attitude and spirit do you think would be found in the contents of the letter? You would assume kind of more of a pessimistic tone. Maybe some more discouraging words. But if you read chapter 1, and we're not going to take a look, but I just want to point out to you some of the words that Paul uses in chapter number 1. He uses words like, thank. Paul was thankful even in perilous times. He used the word joy. He could be joyful even though times were difficult. He used words like power. He knew, oh yeah, the obstacle is big, but my God is bigger. He used words like love. He used words like a sound mind. He used words like purpose and grace. Do you see the mentality of Paul in writing this letter to Timothy? It's not one of discouragement. It's one of, hey, we have a lot to be thankful for. Hey, we have much to be joyful over. We've got the spirit of a sound mind and of power and of love. And what God did for Paul, he could do for Timothy. And what God did for Timothy, he can also do for us. So Paul is writing to Timothy, not in discouragement, but to encourage Timothy. He was also very passionate about what he was writing. He said, my dearly beloved son. Paul wanted what was best for Timothy. He was a son. He was dearly beloved. Those that you dearly beloved, you want what is best for them. Right? Your family members that you love, you want the best that they could possibly have. You try to position them so that they could have the best life or future or opportunity that they might have ahead of them. You want the best for them. If Paul thought that what was best for Timothy was just to hide himself during perilous times, he would have written that. He would have said, hey, perilous times are coming. I mean, it's going to be dangerous out there. Just kind of seclude yourself for a little while and just kind of sit this one out and just don't make any noise and, and just kind of sit quietly over here. And when the perilous times come and go, then you can come back. If Paul thought that was best for Timothy, that's what he would have written but that's not what he wrote. He didn't write, go hide yourself for a little while. He said, hey, let's be bold. Hey, let's follow Jesus Christ. Hey, remember the doctrine that I gave you? You hold to that. And the doctrine that I gave to you, you give to others as well so that they can pass it on to somebody else. He wanted the best for Timothy. And the best for Timothy was this. You follow Jesus Christ through good times or bad. The best thing for you as a Christian is to follow God. Amen? Amen? That's the best thing. Doesn't matter the circumstances. The best thing for you is to follow Jesus Christ. This is what he writes in verse number eight. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his servant. Be thou, uh, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. If Paul thought the best thing for Timothy was to avoid all of the difficult circumstances, he would have written that, but that's the exact opposite of what he wrote. So here is Paul saying, all right, I know tough times are coming, 
but it's worth it for you to stay in the fight. We also see that he's parenting my, uh, Timothy, my dearly beloved son. He has this responsibility of helping this son of his, the spiritual son, to grow and mature to where he needs to be. Now, if you think about, if you have children, you think about your own children, I think about my children. As a parent, I have responsibilities to my child. My responsibility is to provide for my kids. That's part of my responsibility. I've got to provide for their basic needs. They need food, they need clothing, they need shelter, they've got some basic needs. That's my responsibility. I've got some responsibilities to protect my children. I know that there are dangers that they are not aware of that I need to protect them from, right? They don't know how dangerous it is out in the street. I mean, now they're starting to know, but they, initially they don't know. They just run around everywhere. They don't know the danger. So it's my job to protect them. It's my job to play with my children. It's my job to have fun with my kids. It's my job to show them that their parents, their father loves them and they have a loving relationship with me. That it's not just about giving them stuff, it's about having a real relationship with them. That's my responsibility. And I've got to prepare my kids because my kids don't think very far down the line, right? The very farthest that my kids will think will be like a day. But as a parent, I'm thinking farther than a day. I'm thinking about their future 20 years from now, right? I'm thinking about their future 30 years from now. You know what I'm thinking about when my kids are little? I'm thinking about here's what they need when they go out into the workforce in 15, 20, 25 years. They need to learn how to work hard, right? They've got to learn some skills. So I've got to, I've got to educate them. I might take them to a school. I might do it myself. I need them to build character. They might learn character in different places, sports, music, school, whatever, but that's my responsibility. I got to train them up in that way. I've got to teach them how to be respectful. That's important. Whose job is that? It's my job. Because I know if you're disrespectful, that's going to be bad for my kids. So I want them to be respectful. I want them to show up on time. All right. So it's my job to train them to show up on time. I want them to be good to others. I want them to have good manners. I want them, if they get a text message, to text back. I know it sounds difficult, <laughs> but I want them to know if somebody reaches out to you, that you reach back. If somebody says hello, you say hello back, right? I want them to have some basic manners, respect, good work ethic, good character. Why? Because I know 15, 20, 30 years from now, they're going to need some things. When they get married, when they have kids, when they go to work, when they have relationships, when they're working in a, some ministry in a church, they need certain things and it's my job to prepare them. And that's what Paul's doing. Paul is saying, I know what you're going to face, so I've got to prepare you. And that's what he's doing. So we see, first of all, that Paul is saying, there's a change that happened in me that can happen in others as well. And I'm going to tell you how to do it. So point number three is, 
How do we do it? Oh, it's fine and well to say, yeah, God radically changed the lives of some people who got saved. That's great. It's another thing to say, wow, there have been some great churches and great revivals and great movements in the past. It's another thing to say, how do we do it today? How can we have revival? How can we see people saved? How can we see a ministry to grow? How do we see Christians to grow? Well, it's very simply this. The Savior's capacity in Paul. The message that Paul is trying to convey to Timothy is the reason why we have hope even in perilous times is because God is just as powerful today as he was yesterday, as he was the year before, as he was a thousand years ago. He's no less strong. Now we as humans, you know, as we grow, we get stronger. And then as we get older, get a little weaker. God, though, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. See, I don't know what perilous times we're going to face. I just know that God is just as powerful. And we see Christ's power explained. In verse number two, he says to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what some people think that we need for perilous times must be things like charisma. You know what we need? We just need that charismatic leader that can really rally people together. And they just got this personality that draws people in. Everybody loves him and everybody loves listening to him and everybody wants to be around him. Everybody wants to be with him. Everybody wants to be that guy. That's what we need. We just don't have that charismatic leader that just is, you know, draws in everybody and just kind of, you know, when they're on YouTube or on the internet, everybody's like, wow, that guy, we got to listen to that guy. We got to follow that guy that we just need that charismatic leader well paul says actually the exact opposite thing in second corinthians chapter number 10 he says in second corinthians 10 10 for his letters say they are weighty and powerful they were saying here's the church at corinth they would receive these letters from paul and wow these letters are powerful we know about the letters first corinthians and second corinthians wow they're powerful words because they're the words of god but then they say, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Paul writes this letter and they seem so, it seems incredible and powerful and weighty. Wow, I can't wait till Paul comes here and I can sit down and listen to Paul. And then he comes and he stands there in front of him and he speaks to them. And they're like, man, what a disappointment. I remember uh, when I was in, in Bible college, there was a, there was a preacher talking about uh, this book that he had written and it was a book written by a preacher about preaching and this man had read this book as, as a young man you know growing into ministry and he had read this book and he's like wow this is so powerful and he was taking these principles and applying them to his own preaching and he was like this is the greatest manual on how to be a preacher you know he was, he was really excited about this and then that man came into town one day and he's like, wow, I got to sit here and listen to this guy preach. And so he found his way over to wherever it was that he was preaching and he sat down and he listened to him preach and he was like, wow, he's a terrible preacher. <laughs> he was like, he should read his own book. <laughs> you know, he, he had read this book and was so impressed. And then when he actually sat down to listen to the guy, he was very disappointed. Paul was writing these letters to these churches and they would sit down and read these letters and they would be like, wow, these letters are powerful. And they were. 
They were powerful. They were powerful because they were the word of God. But then he would show up, and it's not like he had this grand presence. He would open the doors of the church, and everybody would silence and turn around and look at him, walk down the aisle. That's not the presence that he had. They said his bodily presence was weak. It seemed like, oh, you're the great Paul, the apostle? Or you're the great leader? You're the one that was starting all of these churches? You? No, come on. I read your letters, and I'm listening to you speak. It doesn't seem the same. You don't have that great persona that we thought. Sometimes Christians can think, oh, we just need that great charismatic leader. But Paul says, no, that's not who I was. Paul didn't have that great charismatic personality because the churches didn't think that he did. Some people think, oh, you know what we need? We just need that individual, that preacher, that evangelist that just has that eloquence that is just, he can just phrase things exactly the right way that just makes everybody's jaw drop. Wow, man, he's such a great speaker. Wow, he's such an eloquent uh, individual, and I'm just, everybody's so impressed with how he could form words and sentences and all of these things together. You know, that's what we need. That's what we're missing. You know, if we could just find that man who just knows how to speak the words just the right, perfect way, and everybody will be so impressed and follow him, and then everybody would get saved, and the perilous times would end. Well, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 4, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. He's saying, that's not the way that I spoke. That was not my philosophy. He was well-educated, could have used great influential methodology, but he knew if God was going to work, it would have to be to God's glory, not man's. So he's saying, my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See, the thing that sometimes people think is, oh, we got to have this great personality, and we got to have this great charisma, and we've got to have this great eloquence. You know what that often does is it draws too much attention to man and not to God. Some people think that for perilous times, we need things like political power. We need social influence. We need something as simple as pure money. If we just had some of these things, we could do it. But Paul debunks all of that. You know why? Because Paul had all of that. He had political power. He had social influence. He had access to financial resources. And he wrote about that, Philippians chapter 3, verse number 4. Though I, also, I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man think that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin and Hebrew of Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He's saying, I had all the character traits that people look for in the leader of a movement, but what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. What he's saying is all of these things ended up being a net negative because it took away from Jesus Christ. 
So while a human mind, a human mentality might think we just need more charisma, we need more personality, we need more power, we need more money, we need all of these things. You know what Paul writes to Timothy and he says, for perilous times, this is what I want to give you. He says this, grace, mercy, and peace. Now, I don't know about you, but grace, mercy, and peace doesn't sound like billions of dollars. <laughs> grace, mercy, and peace doesn't sound like we're the ones ruling the country. Grace, mercy, and peace, in fact, sound a little boring. Grace, mercy, peace, that's nice, but we're facing perilous times here, come on. We've got perilous times here, what are you going to give us, God? You know what God gave to his people? Grace, mercy, and peace. I just want to read these three verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. You know what God uses to empower the Christian? His grace. 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know how you have hope of eternal life? The mercy of God. Romans chapter 15. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. You want to have peace in your time, peace in your life? It comes through Jesus Christ. I know grace, mercy, and peace aren't flashy, but that's what God gives to us. I know grace, if you're going to battle, you're going to want to go to battle with like Apache helicopters and Tomahawk missiles. You're going to want to go with the biggest machine guns. And it sounds in some ways like grace, mercy, and peace is like giving somebody sticks and slings and stones and saying, all right, go fight a battle. And they're coming at you with tanks, right? That's what it sounds like. But you know when Goliath had the latest technology in military equipment of the day, you know what took him down? A stone and a sling. You know why? Because it was God that was using it. So here is Paul saying, you know what you need? You need grace, mercy, and peace. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may, uh, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we see that Christ's power was, was given, grace, mercy, and peace. We also know that Christ's power was enough. Because of the name of the book, we're in the book of 2 Timothy, you'll know that he had previously written a different book, also to Timothy, called 1 Timothy. I want you to stay in 2 Timothy, and I'm going to read to you 1 Timothy. You look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 2, I'm going to read to you 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 2. These two letters were written a number of years apart, but I want you to read with me. 1 Timothy chapter 1 says this, Unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. All right? If you're in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 2, it sounds almost the same right? Almost identical to Timothy, 
my dearly beloved son, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see the similarity there? Do you see that what Paul is saying is what was sufficient for you five years ago is sufficient for you today? And if I wrote to you a letter five years from now, I'd probably write the same thing. To Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I know that things have changed around here. I know that 20 years ago, like, social media wasn't really a thing. I know that, you know, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago, like, the internet really wasn't around. I know all of this. I know that times have changed. I know that things have changed, right? When I was growing up, we used to have this book called An Encyclopedia. My parents had invested into this huge volume called the Encyclopedia. And, you know, across this encyclopedia were the letters A, B, C. You know, we didn't have, you know, uh, the internet. You could just Google whatever. You know, if you wanted to find out something, you had to read a book. So we had these encyclopedias. If we were going to do a research paper for school, we would go to the encyclopedia, pull out a book, and look it up, and then find out all these different things. Well, at the very end of that series of books, you know, you go A, B, C, all the way down through to Z, there's another book at the end of that. The, ne the, the next book at the end of that doesn't have a letter, it has a number. And the number on that book was the number 1989. The reason why you have a book in your encyclopedia with the number 1989 is because the encyclopedia was published in the year 1988. And guess what? Things happened in 1989. And if you wanted to research things that happened in 1989, you couldn't find it from A to Z. You had to add in another book. And guess what? After 1989, there would be another book called 1990. Whatever happened in 1990, that would go into that book. So you would have this encyclopedia of A to Z. And then if you kept going down this road, you'd have 89, 90, 91, 92, 93, 94, all the way down the line, all right? Now we don't do that. We just Google things, all right? So we don't have that anymore. But encyclopedias needed to add a book because new things happened that needed to be added to the book. What God here is saying is, I've given you a book, but I don't need to add anything to the book. Amen? He's given to you a book where he doesn't need to add anything to the book. You know why? Because God is from everlasting to everlasting. He knew what would happen in 2020 when he wrote the words in the year, I don't know, 60 or 65 or 59, whenever the, these words were written. He knew what would happen 2,000 years in the future, and he said, I don't want to write any more words, so I'm just going to give you everything you need right now. And he did give us everything that we need right now. So here is the word that was given to us. Because facing perilous times is not about finding a new methodology. It's not about a spiritual life hack. It's not about a quick tip that you can just kind of throw into your life and then everything will be great. It's about going back to the same thing that we've always had before. Lastly, Christ's power was exclusive. Grace, mercy, and peace. That's what you needed in Paul's day, in Timothy's day, and in our day. Comes from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. You know where grace comes from? It comes from God.
You know where mercy comes from? It comes from God. You know where peace comes from? It comes from God. You know where grace doesn't come from? It doesn't come from Paul. Mercy doesn't come from Timothy. Peace doesn't come from your pastor. You know where it comes from? It comes from God. You know what we're trying to do here at church? What we're trying to do here at church is saying, we have all the tools that we need, but you've got to go to the right store. You've got to go to the right store. And there's one store that has exclusive rights to grace, mercy, and peace. You're not getting these at any other store. You ever go to stores and you find exclusives? Found exclusively at Macy's or found exclusively at whatever place, right? Found exclusively. Grace, mercy, and peace found exclusively from God. You know what we're trying to do every single Sunday? What we're trying to do every single Sunday is point you to God's store and say, go shop over there, okay? I know it looks like I'm pointing at this thing and there's a shop there, but like that's not what I do, right? Go to God's store of his word and find the tools that you need for whatever perilous times that you will be facing. So Paul's preoccupation was not in the perilous times. His preoccupation was with the powerful tools that God had given to him. So don't get all wrapped up in what everything is going on today, because I know that there's things going on today. God knew things were going on today, but Paul was not preoccupied with those things. He was preoccupied with God. You know what we try to do here at church? Help all of us to be preoccupied with God. I know that when you get home, it's tempting to pull out Twitter, tempting to turn on the TV. When you go to work and you hear what everybody's talking about, it's going to try to get your eyes off of God and onto the perilous times. But what God wants you to do is take your eyes off of the perilous times onto God and the tools that he has given to you. So let's keep our eyes on God.